Amen. Thank you, Peter. Hey, if it'll help the uh, men's prayer breakfast attendants, we'll be serving pigs in a blanket next Sunday. Some of y'all caught that. Um, hey, we are uh, starting our Christmas series next Sunday, and uh, for today, we wanted to talk about Thanksgiving as we wrap up the Thanksgiving um, time of year. And so our topic uh, is on this idea of being content. Our scripture comes from Exodus chapter 20 and verse 17. Exodus chapter 20 is where the law is given to Moses, the Ten Commandments, uh, that portion of the law. And so this is number 10 of the Ten Commandments. So as is our custom, I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You're not going to be on your feet very long. It's just one verse. It's pretty short stuff. All right, here we go. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. You may be seated. Now, that wasn't uh, long enough to get your blood flowing, but uh, we'll trust that y'all are alert and ready to go here. Let's talk about the full meaning of what's happening here in commandment number 10. Um, I've got, and in order to do that, I've got a couple of questions that I want to ask and answer, three of them in fact, um, for us to, to, to grasp this. And the first of those questions is, what exactly is meant when it says not to covet? What does this mean? Well, let's take a look at the verse. It says, Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servants or his female servants or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. Now, to covet something literally means to long for it, to want something that is not yours. It's something that you don't have, somebody else has, and you want it for yourself. That's the idea of coveting. As commandment number 10 implies, we can covet almost anything in life. We can covet our neighbor's house. We can cover, covet our neighbor's kitchen. Like they got an island now. They've got some new granite countertops. They've got new cabinets. And I really covet, I really want that, cat, that kind of kitchen for myself. You can covet their boat, their clothes, their shoes. We can covet their iPhone, their smoker, their gun collection, their backyard playset. I mean, whatever it may be that your neighbor has, boy, I really want a pool like that. Whatever it is that they have that you really want, but you don't have, that's coveting. The Bible says that we can even covet another man's wife. We can covet another woman's husband. We can covet other people's success. We can covet their position. We can covet their status, their popularity in the world. We can covet their athletic ability. I was watching the Iron Man. Did anybody watch the Iron Man yesterday afternoon? Because the TV, there wasn't a whole lot going. For, uh, anyway, so yeah, I know there were some good games on. But anyhow, the, I, did, I did tape it and watch it later. That's what I did. But the Iron Man was on, and so I was watching the Iron Man. As you all know, I like to go out and run. But I'm watching these athletes, these extreme athletes who, who swim 2.4 miles, bike 112 miles. These are each like a marathon of their own. Like to swim 2.4 miles, I mean, that's marathon type stuff. To bike 112 miles, that's marathon kind of stuff. And at the end of it, then they go and run 26.2 miles. They run a marathon. And, over the, and like the best athletes in the world, it takes them somewhere like seven plus hours for them to complete all of this. Most of the people were coming in around 14 hours, 15 hours. There was one guy, no kidding, 84 years old, finished the course. That's incredible. I'm hoping that I'm that guy, right? But I'm watching this and I'm thinking to myself, I so wish that I could do that. But I know there's no way in this world that I could ever do that. But nevertheless, I've coveted their athletic ability. We might covet somebody's personality or their wit, their talents, their good looks. But coveting, friends, it is a problem of the human race. 
And this is why the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 20, Sheol and Abaddon, that is death and destruction, are never satisfied. Death and destruction are never satisfied, and neither are the eyes of a sinful man. This is why John Ruskin, the famous philosopher, said, and I quote, We have two basic aims in life, whatever we get to have more, and wherever we are to be somewhere else. Whatever we get to have more of it, and wherever we are, we want to be someplace else. And that pretty much sums up the whole concept of coveting. Now, it's important for us as we're defining the sin of coveting that we recognize that the sin of coveting is not an outward action. Rather, it is an inner attitude of the heart. It's something that happens on the inside of us where people can't see. It's impossible for us to violate commandment number 10 and for people to see that it happened. Um, And so this is why the sin of coveting has never appeared on some civil law code. Like there's no rule in the books that says like you can't covet and if you do covet that the police are going to come and they're going to arrest you for that, right? Because it's something that happens on the inside of us. It's not something that happens in an outward way. Um, friends, this is, but this is God's law code. And unlike us, God can see the heart of in other individuals. God can see what's going on in the inside of us. This is why 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7 said, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God knows the secret thoughts in our mind. God knows the drives and desires of our hearts. God sees those things and can make judgments about us based on those. Now that leads us to question number two. That's what, that's what covenanting is. What do, but question number two is, what, why did God put this commandment in the Bible? Like what's, what's so bad about it? What's so bad about wanting what somebody else has? Maybe that's aspirations, right? Maybe that's a goal that I might set for myself, right? What's so bad about coveting that God wants to put this in the Bible and says, don't do this? Well, the answer is commandment number 10 is in the Bible because God knows that the sins of the hand, the outward actions, start where? In the heart. This is why Jesus said, Matthew 15 and verse 19, for out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder and adultery and sexual immorality and theft and false witness and slander. Jesus says all the outward acts that we commit, they start on the inside. They start with dissatisfaction on the inside. They start with wanting what somebody else has that I don't have, and then I, I react in a way that tries to go and achieve those things. This is why Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart with vigilance, uh, for from it flow the springs of life. When it comes to the sins of the heart, the sins of the mind, friend, I believe that coveting is the most deadliest sin of them all because coveting is like a, a mother sin, if you would. It gives birth to other sins. Um, so we, we covet what somebody else has, and that leads us to commit the sin of stealing. We covet what somebody else has, and it may lead us to the sin of adultery. It leads to those outward actions, but it's an inward attitude in our heart where that stuff starts that leads us to commit those outward acts. It's the mother sin, if you would think of it that way. Jesus said, Luke chapter 12 and verse 15, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness. The apostle Paul said, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing, we will be content. Verse 9, watch this now, He says, but for those who desire to be rich, 
they will fall into, and he lists off a whole bunch of negative consequences that come out of these desires of the heart. He says they'll fall into the trap of temptation, they'll fall into various traps, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. And then finally he concludes in verse 10 by saying, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving, something that happens on the inside of us, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs or with many griefs. If you want some examples of how greed can destroy your life, we'll look no further than the Bible. The Bible's full of examples of how greed led to personal destruction. Think about Eve. Eve wasn't content with what all that God had given her in the garden. She wanted something more, and as a result of that craving in her heart, it then led to an outward act where she uh, fell into sin. David was not content with the wives that he had, so he coveted Bathsheba, and the result was a disaster. Achan got greedy and took some of the spoils from the city of Jericho that God had said, don't take any of that, leave that behind, don't take that for yourself. Achan took it anyway, and the result was a disaster. It cost him his life. Um, Absalom coveted the throne of his father David, and as a result of him in that deep inner craving that he had, it resulted in his own death and civil war between his family. Ever heard of a guy named Gehazi? You say, not lately, right? Well, let me tell you a little bit about Gehazi. Gehazi was the personal assistant to the prophet Elisha. So you read through the Bible, you've run into this guy named Elijah. Elijah had a guy that succeeded him named Elisha. Elisha had a personal assistant named Gehazi. Well, a fellow comes from north of Israel, a commander, a general of the armies of the Assyrians, a fellow by the name of Naaman. And Naaman has contracted leprosy, but he hears that there's this prophet in Israel, a guy named Elisha, who could potentially heal him. So he's willing to try anything, right? He's not a Jewish person. He doesn't believe in the God of the Jewish people, but he figures, why not? And so he goes down into Israel and he meets with Elisha and Elisha gives him pres prescription. And so he goes and he follows the prescription, puts the mud on himself, bathes in the river. And uh, surprisingly, to his surprise, the leprosy's gone. And, and so as a, as a response to that, as a, as a, a thank you, to Elisha, he comes to him and says, name your price. I'll give you silver. I'll give you gold. I'll give you orchards. I'll give you vineyards. I'll give you anything that you want. And Elisha says, I don't want any of that stuff. I'm not interested in that. Just know that the Lord, our God, is the one who has healed you. And so Naaman goes away. Well, Gehazi, Elisha's servant, says, you just missed out on a great opportunity, right? To put some money in the bank and to have some wealth and to have some nice new clothes. And so Gehazi goes running after Naaman and he says, hey, look, um, Elisha has changed his mind. Uh, he actually really wanted some new clothes. He actually really wanted some gold and silver. And so he loads himself up, loads up his donkeys, and he comes back to Elisha. And he says, hey, look at all this stuff that, that Naaman was willing to share with us. And so then um, Elisha's response, he says to Gehazi, he says, my brother, is this the time to receive money or clothes or oxen or vineyards? And then he says, 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 27, therefore... The leprosy that clung to Naaman shall now cling to you and to your descendants forever. And Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, a leper like snow. Friends, greed. Greed was what was at the heart of Gehazi, covetousness, wanting something that he didn't have and thinking that it would be what would satisfy him. And so he went for that and he went after that and it led to his own personal destruction. Um, that's why commandment number 10, the Lord is calling us to live lives that are genuinely content 
because God knows that it is virtually impossible for Satan to seduce into sin somebody who has a contentment in their heart. Think about the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 when Satan comes to tempt the Lord Jesus. And he says to him, he says, uh, hey, look, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down and worship me. You can have all of this. Everybody on the planet will bow down and will worship you if you'll just bow down and worship me. And so Jesus says to him, be gone. I'm satisfied with what the Father has given me. I'm satisfied with what the Father has given me. And so he sends Satan running. See, Satan could not seduce a satisfied Savior. Think about the Apostle Paul. He said in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, For I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. The devil comes to him. He says, Hey, Paul, how about you serve me and I'll take away, and, and if you don't, I'm going to take away everything you have. Well, the Paul, Paul basically responds there in this verse. He's saying, I don't have anything anyway, and none of it belongs to me anyway. It all belongs to the Lord. So that doesn't, doesn't, uh, won't sway me. And so the devil comes back again. He says, hey, Paul, serve me and I'll give you everything that you want. Paul says, I don't have anything that I want. Everything that I have is in Christ. And so see, how can you take a person like that and sway them from the Lord? How do you dissuade a person like that? Well, the answer is you can't. Okay, well, that's our treatment of this topic today. Now that you know what coveting is, now that we've walked through this verse together, you have a good sense of how that uh, popped out in biblical, some of the, uh, the characters in the scriptures. Um, that means it's time for us to ask our third and final question. And it's the question you didn't get to hear last week because it wasn't here. And I know y'all are really hungry to hear it. What difference does all this make to my life? You say, Gordon, I get it. I get it, right? It's Thanksgiving. We're supposed to be content, feel blessed about the life that we have. We live in America. It's great. Let's, let's get on home and eat some more uh, leftovers that we've got left. So um, hang on just a second. Let's talk about that. Because, yeah, we know what contentment is, but knowledge is only half the battle. The thing that I want for us to talk about here on the backside is, how do I get contentment? How do I come to a place where I feel satisfaction with the life that God's given me, with the things that I have, um, in a good way? I mean, we don't want to just live our lives satisfied and not strive. That's not what we're talking about. But that we don't have this longing in our heart for something that we don't have that somebody else has that can lead to the destruction in our own lives. So how do we get that kind of healthy contentment in our life? Well, first of all, let's consider some of the great men and women of God through the, um, through the Scriptures. They put everything on the line for God. And that was part of the way that they had contentment. Think about Abraham. Abraham left his hometown of Ur. He traveled up into Mesopotamia and then down into the land of Canaan, to a land that he was not familiar with. He left all of his inheritance behind, everything that he had, and he followed God into the middle of nowhere. Why did he do it? Well, the scriptures tell us why he did it. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 10 says, For he was looking forward, Abraham was looking forward to a city that has everlasting foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Why did Abraham leave everything behind? Because he was looking forward to his heavenly reward. He knew that his life on this earth was to be expended on behalf of eternal things, and he was in pursuit of those rather than pursuit of what he could get during his time here in this earth. How about Moses, who chose to be mistreated alongside the people of God? Remember, he left behind being a prince in Egypt in order to join a bunch of slaves. And so the scriptures tell us why Moses did that, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 26, because Moses was looking forward to his reward, that is to heaven, to eternal things. 
He had his affection set on heaven above. The Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8 says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Friends, here is a man who has set his affections on things above, on things that will last forever rather than getting so focused on what he can accumulate and accomplish here in this life. And we could go on to talk about people throughout history like John Wesley, people like Dwight L. Moody, people like Francis Asbury and Hudson Taylor and Jim Elliott and Mother Teresa and Fanny Crosby and the great preacher George Whitfield. Friends, these were men and women who set their affections on things above, who had eternity in view in what, in, in what they were accomplishing here in this, wor- in this world. They set their affections on he- in heaven, and they spent every ounce of strength that they had not trying to accumulate treasure on earth, but trying to lay up treasures in heaven. That is what made them different. That's what brought contentment into their life. Not that they were trying to get enough stuff, but rather that they were trying to pour out their life for eternal things. Friends, you and I can do that. We can do that. But we have to decide what's most important to us. Is accumulating more stuff and more stuff, which there's always going to be more of it to get, right? The philosopher said, to go places and see things, and then we get there and we wish we were somewhere else? Or is it to pour our life out on behalf of eternal things, to actively and intentionally lay up treasures in heaven, to actively and intentionally set our affections on things above, to have the perspective of Abraham, to have the perspective of Moses, to have the perspective of the apostle Paul? You remember what Elisha said to his servant Gehazi? Elisha said to him, 2 Kings 5 and verse 26, O Gehazi, was this the time to accept money and garments and olive orchards and vineyards? Is this really what God put us here on this earth to accomplish? Is this what we should be doing? Well, as followers of Jesus Christ, I'm going to leave us with the same question that Elisha asked Gehazi. And it's my prayer that every one of us that comes up with a different answer than what Gehazi came up with will realize that we're setting our life on a trajectory toward eternity. Gehazi wanted the stuff, right? Moses, Abraham, Apostle Paul wanted eternal things. In closing, let me say that I meet so many people who are followers of Christ that have divided hearts. They have conflicted desires inside of them, that they want the things of this world, but at the same time, yeah, I want to be able to pour my life out for God. They're trying to hold on to the world, right, and the stuff of this world with one hand. They're trying to hold on to eternal things with the other, and they feel themselves in this constant tug of war between the two. And the reason that they're so conflicted is because Jesus said, this right here can't be done. He said, you cannot serve two masters. You got to let go of the one in order to pursue and follow the other. Friends, we have to deliberately, intentionally choose God each and every day and the things that are eternal each and every day. That's why the song says, I have decided to follow Jesus. When I was 12 years old, I was saved when I was eight. When I was 12 years old, I went away for the very first time off to teen camp or youth camp. And I remember going to camp and I was sitting with my friends and I was sitting toward the back someplace and, um, and you know, we were having a great week. And enjoying our time, the speaker was up front, and he gave a message, and I just really felt compelled to come forward 
um, in response to that message. But I decided, ah, I'm not really sure that maybe I need to think about this a little bit. So the next night I said, hey, look, I'm going to come sit up in the front. I'm going to sit right where Peter Kelly's sitting. Right? And I was right up there in the front. Don't you love it when we call people out? So I, I, I was sitting right up front, and uh, I said, whatever, you know, if the Lord wants to speak to me tonight, I'm going to be right there. I'm going to have a short trip, right, to respond. And so the pastor got finished speaking, and he gave an invitation at the end. And I remember closing my eyes, and I said, Lord, if the guy in front of me will go forward, <laughs> right, then I'll go forward too. And sure enough, there was a guy sitting right in front of me in the front row. And as soon as I opened up my eyes from that prayer, that guy walked out. And as soon as he walked out without any hesitation, I followed right behind him. And I remember before I ever got to my knees, the Holy Spirit said to me, he said, Gordon, you follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. You follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. Friends, following Jesus is a decision. It's a decision. We don't stumble our way into following Jesus. It's a decision that we make. We've decided that we're going to follow Jesus. There's no turning back. The world behind me. I'm not staring at the world. I'm focused on eternity. I'm looking toward heaven. I've got my prize and my goal set before me. It's the cross that I'm looking at. The world behind me, the cross before me. I don't care if anybody goes with me. I'm going forward with Christ. Friends, this is the decision that I made when I was 12 years old. Have I gotten this right 100% of the time since? No, I have not. No, I have not, <clears throat> but I've been consistent for the most part, and God has blessed me and blessed my life over and over and over again in ways that I absolutely do not deserve. But friends, I don't follow Jesus for the stuff that I can get. I don't follow Jesus for the blessing that I can receive. I follow Jesus because he's worthy of being followed. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for just reminding us again today of what the focus of our life should be. So many have gone before us and have made that decision and have done mighty and great things for your kingdom because they set the affections of their heart, the inside attitude on you. God, as we gather around this table today to be reminded of your shed blood and of your broken body, may we reaffirm again our decision to follow you. And Lord, as we make that decision day over day, we know that our heart will be flooded with contentment. Our heart will be flooded with peace. God, the very thing that we were hoping all the stuff of the world might fill, you will fill. You will satisfy. So Lord, we just give you the space. We ask your Holy Spirit to stir and work in our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name.